Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for joining us on the Toronto Today podcast. Great to have you here heading into a weekend. Not Easter weekend. It's only a two-day weekend. Not a four-day one or a three-day one or a three-and-a-half-day one. Uh, but weekends are weekends. We do not take them for granted. Uh, thank you for uh, finding us. We've got on our show today um, infectious disease specialist, Dr. Isaac Bogosh. We want to ask him about wastewater. We want to ask him uh, about masks. Okay. And Stefan Burrell is going to join us as well. He's... Um, Basically, join the vast, vast, vast majority um, of people who don't think you can get numbers from wastewater. You can't count cases from wastewater. It's too complex, given many, many different reasons. And I lean on those people, the CDC, um, the, uh, the UK health services to say it's impossible to do. It's never been done anywhere. It didn't stop Peter Uni doing it on Wednesday, did it? We'll have our Chatterbox segment with Mike Stubbs and Jason Chapman uh, as we dive into home ownership, especially there. That was a big topic on the show today, whether it does indeed make it easier for younger people to own a home or whether or not we're still saving for decades on end. And the younger generation, we got to do better by them. We got to give them some of the same opportunities to own homes in in, in where they want to live, where they want to work. Um, and we're not doing a great job of it right now. We're not helping them out. And think of the, about those that uh, that can help them out. So we'll talk about that. I think that's a really interesting and important conversation. I don't want to let that go anytime soon. So Toronto Today begins now. Let me start here <laughs> with, uh, and we'll keep you updated on these heavy stories uh, from Ukraine. I want to update in that uh, a little bit. Um, we talked about wastewater on the show yesterday. Oh, gross. Well, we did. And uh, we're going to do it a little later on this morning. I want to set you up to let you know Dr. Isaac Bogosh on at 7 o'clock. And, of course, um, Stefan Burrell, an epidemiologist around 8 o'clock, um, he exhibited um, some online skepticism about being able to do exactly what Peter Uni did a couple days ago. Again, a lot of people kneel at the altar of pandemic Pete, but he hasn't been right in a long, long time. OK, I, I, I cannot question. I can't get inside somebody's head and, and think about motive at this point in time. But I heard from too many people. Some people don't want to go on the record about this stuff. That that number, okay, we ran with that number. Everybody ran with that number two days ago. He says uh, to Cynthia Mulligan, 100, 120,000 cases a day just based on the wastewater reports. Um, we, we ran with it. We, there's no doubt about it. I mean, it. you would think there'd be some balance and nuance and you'd say, wow, are we the first jurisdiction in Ontario? 14 million people here. Love it. Yours to discover. I've lived almost my whole life here. Um, are we the first jurisdiction in the entire country, continent, planet to gauge cases, give you a hard and fast estimate that does vary between 20,000 people when it comes to COVID based on wastewater? Yep. Wait a minute. Oh, OK, so it's good to be first sometimes, isn't it? It's good to be innovative. Has anyone else um, done it uh, at all? Has anyone else followed up in the, in the last few days and given a is this something new and, and were we really innovative? Nope. So we're the first and only, and no one did it in the prior 26 months that COVID-19 has dominated at times, okay, much to some of our chagrin. People say, Brady, do a little less COVID. I'm like, oh, I'm trying to get us there. If you don't, <laughs> if you don't hear me trying to get us there, you're missing, you're missing the boat, okay? The boat has been only going one way. If all 14 million of us voted about COVID and decided what to do, 
we would have a pretty clear uh, margin of victory as to where we're going with it. No, it isn't over. No, I'm not underestimating it. I talk to my parents who talk about it a lot. I don't think they should be living by the same rules. I don't think my 13-year-old should live by the same rules that my 78-year-old dad does. I can keep going. Um, but bottom line, um, you can't do what was done yesterday is the best is the best methodology. You can't. There's, <laughs> there is no history. There is no background. There is no basis, scientific or otherwise, to take wastewater readings and be able to come up with a fat number, like 100, 120,000 cases per day in the province, and be able to justify talking about it like it's, it's an actual fact, okay? There was a doctor out there who says, oh, the Ontario Science Table is reporting that there's 100, 120,000. He knows as much about journalism as somebody who's, well, never been in journalism. Like, like stay in the lane. Do what you do. We'll do what we do. You, I, I'm not going to try open heart surgery on anybody later on today around 11 o'clock. I'm going to get done this show, hand it over to Kelly Cotrera, and I'm going to go enjoy my weekend. I might read a book. I might go for a run. But I know what I'm not doing, and that's uh, intubating anybody. Okay, I know what I do. And uh, no, the Ontario Science Table is not reporting there's 120,000 cases a day in this particular province. We played you a clip yesterday of Suzanne Lackner, a wastewater engineer from Darmstadt, she laid this out and said it's impossible to properly estimate case counts for COVID based on wastewater readings. Like, it's literally impossible. So, you know, like Joe Rogan, let me say this. I'm not a Joe Rogan guy. I don't listen to the Joe Rogan podcast. A lot of people text the show. You can text, by the way, 289-975-1640. It's an open forum. It's a trust tree. Here we are. Um, but I don't listen to the, the Rogan podcast. I listen when there's a celebrity on. If he's got Rob Lowe on, I'm really interested to hear you know Rob Lowe tell some stories or um, the Hollywood actress or uh, Madonna. I, like I'm I'm interested in that kind of stuff. Sanjay Gupta going on was fascinating because there you have Sanjay Gupta from CNN on going on with Joe Rogan and having conversations like you and I might have over a beer about COVID. Okay, um, so it's not for me usually. But here's the problem. We had a lot of people trying to uh, de-platform Joe Rogan. Get off Spotify. Your information's bad. Well, you don't have to listen to it. You don't have to uh, partake in it. You don't have to download it. Um, but Joe Rogan can't close my kid's school down. His podcast His podcast has no influence on whether my kid goes to school or not. <laughs> okay? And whether uh, there's any sort of overture about a return to online learning. He can't do that. Joe Rogan can't make my parents scared to go to uh, Costco or Walmart. <laughs> you think my, they're born in the 40s. Not many people in the 40s are downloading the Joe Rogan podcast. Rogan's not trying to influence the Ontario election. He doesn't care if Doug Ford stays in. He doesn't care if Andrea Horvath is premier, finally. Um, and he can't close a local business up. Joe Rogan can't do any of those things. But when we kneel at the altar of pandemic, Pete, potential's there, isn't it? Because what happened yesterday? Where did we follow up with this yesterday? We had the opposition party leaders come out and say, you know what we need to get back to? Masks. I'm not against masks. I wore one for two and a half hours in a walk-in clinic on Monday. If it did come back, I would absolutely comply and wear it at the grocery store. I would wear it. I wore it for five hours each way, flying to Los Angeles in February. If that was the rule, I would follow the rule. I haven't worn it too many places, to be honest, in the last three or four weeks. Because you know why? I'm a huge believer in the vaccines. We're going to have to start having honest conversations to be fair about who's a believer in the vaccine and who isn't. 
I got these three things in my arm. I trust them to keep me safe. Uh, a cloth mask or an N95 mask that's not fitted, not so much. The vaccines are what matters. The vaccines have kept people out of hospitals. How I, you, can't, you can't find enough stories in the United States. It's the States, okay? But I bet you I could in Europe, and I bet you we could here as well, of people who ended up uh, getting intubated, by the way. Again, something I'm not doing around uh, 11 o'clock. Uh, this morning, uh, right before uh, I have a Caesar salad for lunch and take a nap. Um, but you won't find it, you know, people uh, getting intubated who say you find plenty of people getting intubated who say family members say, oh, you know, she just she just they told her the masks were so effective. And she just thought, why get the vaccine? The masks are so awesome. And she'll never be the same again. Or maybe she died. We have gotten so much bad, conflicting, conflating information about that kind of stuff. What does the CDC say about about wastewater, though? Maybe maybe there before we get back to mass, maybe the way maybe wastewater to cases. Maybe it can be done. The CDC would know. No, um, you can't surveil wastewater and know the extent of any outbreak. The CDC says, and they said this last April, there's no clear idea on the minimal number of cases in a community with a positive detection of the virus in wastewater. It can't be done. There's a weak correlation between gene abundances in wastewater with the number of cases, hospitalized or otherwise. Okay. I, I mean, I'm going to go with you guys. I'm going to go with you guys. Maybe the CDC would have been right about the Omicron wave, and, and Peter Uni wasn't. And maybe the CDC was right about the Delta wave in August and September, and, and Peter Uni also was. But maybe he's got it this time. Maybe he's got it this time, and maybe we, we got we to gotta lock down again. Maybe that's it. Maybe we close up. Maybe, again, do we close up schools? Christine Elliott, by the way, yesterday responded to a good chunk of that information uh, coming out. And she knows the wind's blowing a little bit in one direction. And listen, I got all day, all day to ask where Dr. Kieran Moore is. He should be out there. He should be saying things. They are hiding him. It's wrong. You got it. Okay. I'm going to play it straight up the middle and be objective about this. Christine Elliott, though, does document our ICU numbers are holding. Answer. Today, the number of people in ICUs was 157. Yesterday, it was 166. We're holding steady and we'll continue to do so. I don't know what more can be said about that. ICU numbers are holding really well. If we compare, by the way, in Ontario, if we compare our hospitalizations, we compare them to BC and Quebec, here's the numbers. BC has one person out of almost 16,000 hospitalized right now. They dropped their mask mandate four weeks ago. Ontario has one in almost 13,000. And they're high. They're higher than they were three weeks ago. Absolutely. We were going to ride a little bit of a wave here, a little bit of seasonality, little bit of increase in hospitalizations based on some mandates dropping. Of course we were. Remember, schools have been open eight weeks and they've been safe. And um, a lot of people didn't want even them open on January 19th. You decide for yourself if that was political or not. And Quebec, one in 5,363. Quebec has twice the problem with hospitalizations. And they've had a mask mandate in place. They haven't moved it. They've been rigid. You got to wear them wherever you go, indoors. They don't have them in schools the last three weeks. But Quebec is on fire compared to Ontario. You can decide for yourself if they work. I can't find evidence that they do. Not since Omicron. I, I, I know you think they give you some level of protection, and I'm all for confidence. If you need to feel more confident, fantastic. Google one-way masking, and you'll be able to do it. And there always will be circumstances where I'll support you in that. But we cannot go backwards at this particular point in time. The numbers don't dictate it. 
The numbers do not dictate a need to do that. And even if Andrea Horvath and Stephen Del Duca said, let's go backwards, what are the metrics by which you decided that? When did you decide it? And Stephen Del Duca would have to explain that he did it after his maskless rally two weekends ago when it was just fine for a bunch of people to crowd into one space, have no mask on, shout, yell, scream, talk about voting liberal. That's fine. Everybody's entitled to do that. And by the way, Andrea Horvath and Stephen Del Duca, pick a gate tonight, go to Rogers Center and protest that 48,000 people will be maskless and screaming for the Blue Jays to beat the Texas Rangers tonight. All we ask sometimes is consistency. I want it from the Ford government. So I got if I'm going to ask it out of them, I got to ask it out of everybody else as well. So yesterday we talked about um, Peter Uni, uh, Ontario Science Table, ahead, departing Ontario Science Table head. I know there's people saying, I thought he left already. I Look, um, people are allowed to say what they want, and then the media can do what they want with it, and, and we can you know dissect whether, whether there's validity, whether there needs to be more balance, more nuance. But it got headlines, okay, so we got to talk about it. 100 to 120,000 cases. Peter Uni says, I know there's 100, 120,000 cases. When it comes to taking wastewater readings, which are on an uptick, no one disputes that. We just talked to Dr. Isaac Bogush about it. When I know, I know, 100, 120,000 cases per day. And now he also mentioned that nearly 3.8 million people were um, hit by Omicron. And that's probably pretty accurate. I'll get, like That's probably an accurate reading of how Omicron just waved over us in uh, late November, December, all of January. We saw what the numbers were, had all these protections in place. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. Here's what a, um, uh, a uh, wastewater engineer said yesterday. I thought this was really significant. And she said this in an interview on Australian television um, a couple couple months ago in February of this year. She doesn't think you can do what Peter Uni did. And I haven't seen it anywhere else. The CDC doesn't think you can do it. Um, UK public health doesn't think you can do it. And that's get a number, even a guess, a quantifiable guess at numbers from wastewater. Here's what she said. Can the data also be used to estimate the, the actual number of infected people? Um, from what we've done, I would be hesitant to do that. I know colleagues have tried that, but in, in that sense, I, I would say we don't know enough uh, from the from the medical side how many uh, or, how, or how much virus one person actually excretes. And um, I would I wouldn't do that, but I'm a wastewater engineer, so. That's a lot. There's a lot of factors there. Now, she does quantify at the end that she's not an expert. That's OK. That's Suzanne Lackner, a wastewater engineer from Darmstadt, uh, Germany. I want to bring on uh, Stefan Burrell. He's an infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist, and he's kind enough to join us now. It's tricky, right? Wastewater has been really helpful, Stefan, in terms of uh, uh, dictating uh, flow. And we've seen it in major U.S. cities kind of kind of dictate that Omicron was coming and dictate that BA2 was coming. It's really tricky to get case numbers. And I, I just worry that uh, that, that I, I think we're sort of feeling around in the dark if we're trying to guess at actual numbers from it. Yeah, thanks for that. I, I think, you know, just having been involved in a number of wastewater programs at a shelter level, uh, they've been incredibly useful. So, I mean, in a very rough sense, you know, they give you an idea of like, is there virus in the building? And then we have to go through and do rapid testing and other testing strategies. But even using that, there's like, it gives you even at a very, the most granular level, like at a single facility, it basically says like, no inconclusive and yes. Like even, like I said, at a shelter level, we do not, and they don't provide, this is led by Ryerson University in, in partnership with the province. They can't provide any estimate of the numbers uh, of people within a building 
uh, that have COVID. And so, indeed, I think, you know, e- even at the end, I, I think that expert said, you know, she's like, I'm an expert in wastewater surveillance. I don't know what sort of expert you would need to be in order to, like, draw out wastewater data to, you know, actual case counts. Because as she said, there's just so many different determinants, including viral load per person, you know, where this, where the water is being sampled, uh, what sort of treatment is the water is exposed to before it's sampled, et cetera. Like, it's so complex. So the idea that you can infer anything more than a very rough trend from these data, I, I think, is is exactly right. Does it make a difference, Stefan, uh, whether people are on um, – we've got – my number yesterday was 18% of people are on septic tanks. Like my parents live out in the country, they'd be on a septic tank. There'd be no way to read their uh, independent wastewater. Does that make a distinction? I mean, we do see COVID build up, obviously, in more urban metropolitan areas as opposed to rural areas. Does that make it even harder if people are on septic tanks? Yeah, I mean, I think it makes it harder to generalize across the province, right? So I think what they've done, and this has been a problem throughout COVID, is that we've like taken a single number and we've applied it to the entire province. And I think that's exactly, you know, that's an, an example of it, which is to say that we are sampling in very specific places. And even if we were going to do that, we'd have to build a model, like a mathematical model, where we try to, you know, assess the, you know, how representative those samples are of the province and then try to extrapolate to other places. But we're not doing any of that. Like those are interesting mathematical calculations that we've worked on for other things like HIV and STI prevalence, for example, in the province where we don't test everybody. But none of that's happening. This is just like somebody is like taking a number and applying it. And I I think, you know, there's very few people that would run with the number that he provided other than himself. But it is amazing how widely uh, that number was shared, uh, both domestically and internationally, I say, you know, across the province and really uh, a- across the world of like, you know, we now have 100,000 cases again in the province, which is just fascinating how fast this information spreads, or at least the, these sort of quotes spread. Well, I'll raise my hand and say I'm a little disappointed by it. I, I do think, again, this, the CDC, so this would never happen in the United States. The CDC's comment at this time, it is not possible to reliably and accurately predict the number of infected individuals in a community based on wastewater testing. But I think we know if the head of the CDC or even, even Dr. Anthony Fauci went before a camera yesterday or told a reporter there's, and if we do the 10 times the population thing for the United States, 1.2 million people a day are getting infected by uh, by Omicron. Um, and it'd be way more than that because we're only so we're 14 million. If that if they said that in New York City, I think we, the, like alarm bells would go off and they say, where's the where's the balance? Where, where are we? How are we sourcing this? How are we checking this? I don't think we did that enough the last 48 hours. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, basically what's being said is that you know, like it's like 3% of the population are being infected on a daily basis. So in the U.S., that would be, you know, I think that's like 9 million people a day. Yeah. And so, so indeed, I think, you know, I think it's really important to say that the folks that we work with that are wastewater experts, and this is, there's an amazing team at Ryerson that is really leading this work that may be worth speaking to, mm. don't even at a facility level provide estimates of like the numbers of folks that could be infected, even though we know exactly how many people are in the building at any one time when the samples are taken and, and nobody feels comfortable providing, providing an estimate. So I think, you know, the, obviously it's, it's provided this quote has gone uh, long and far. It's, it's, it's really reigniting a lot of concern in folks. And, and in, in many ways it might be even undermining some of the vaccination programs because people feel like it's not made any difference 
all this vaccine. And as somebody who leads the vaccine program, that's <laughs> tough because you really are still encouraging folks as much as folks are thinking about third and fourth doses. We're still working on first and second doses. Uh, for a lot of folks. And people just feel like it makes no difference. You've not helped anything. Uh, and we have 100,000 cases in the province. And this is a year, more than a year after you started your vaccine program. So I do think that like we need to be really careful about our messaging. And that's why the province is is good at this and has training in this. And I think, you know, it'd be helpful to like coordinate. This is why I think the move of the science table under Public Health Ontario is so important because it can help them develop meaningful strategies to communicate complex information in a way that we're not doing right now. We're just running with interviews and saying whatever people feel like saying. Stefan Burrell is our guest on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. Um, I echo your frustrations. I mean, I, I try and provide nuance and balance, and, and it's all I can do. And, and I'm, I'm in a really frustrating period right now. I'm frustrated with all three of the major parties. I'm, to be honest, frustrated with all three of the major leaders because I think people are struggling right now, Stefan, to, to just keep their, uh, keep their heads on straight. They don't know what's political and they don't know what isn't. They don't know what is data-based and they don't know what is, uh, is, is you know, uh, an element of, of attempting to appeal to influence uh, a vote. And look, this is I think we saw this in, in the in the U.S. election. I think there were people saying uh, to just to make sure Donald Trump didn't get elected again. And listen, let me raise my hand and say by any means necessary. But there were people, you know, dismissing the vaccines, dismissing some of the, the public health matters that were involved. And I just I think we're all a little stressed thinking everything just feels political right now. It's really frustrating. You do numbers. You do the epidemiology. So it's really maddening right now for a lot of our listeners and for me. Yeah, I, I'll just, I just want to finish by saying that, you know, this was the reason that Public Health Ontario exists as separate from the government. I don't think people realize that it is separate from the Ministry of Health because the politicization of public health was a problem. It was a problem during mm-hmm. Walkerton. It was a problem during SARS. And so I think, you know, the idea that this has become, COVID has become a political issue has undermined the response in, in, in very significant ways. And, and, I, and I share your frustration as a, as a citizen of this province. I share your frustration with just this extreme politicization that I think is really undermining our response. I got to ask what you see going forward. You mentioned, you know, vaccination. And uh, this is why people say, well, what's your perspective on? And I'm like, I believe so vehemently in the vaccines protecting from severity of illness and certainly death. Uh, And at the same, I don't think there's anything close. We've made huge mistakes equating any form of masking as valuable as, as N95s might be in circumstances. We've made huge mistakes equating masks with vaccines. What can we do to boost more vulnerable people? What can we do to have more honest and frank conversations about even the fourth shot for people in their 70s and 80s? I think we need to, first of all, meet folks where they're at, give them the time that they need, um, and and then just look at what their barriers are. So, you know, I I work exclusively in a shelter setting, so for Mm -hmm. folks experiencing homelessness. And there's still a ton of work using ambassadors like, local folks also experiencing homelessness that believe in the vaccines to communicate to their peers, to talk to them. I think engaging religious leaders and talking to them because I know they have a lot of sway over the, some of the folks that we aim to serve. So there's a ton of this work that needs to happen that, you know, shaming, blaming, vaccine passports, none of these things have achieved. What, what will achieve it is just like sitting down with folks, seeing what their concerns are, seeing how we can address those concerns, and then giving people the time and the agency to make those decisions. That's the only way that I, as a, I, I should just know it as a public health specialist, have been trained for everything that it is that I do. And, and I really think that's what we need to get back to here.
hear you loud and clear. You can follow him on Twitter at SD Burrell. Uh, more raccoon photos also. I don't, I want that. I, I, you know, like, like you're, you're multitasking. You're, you're, you're bringing good, good info to the public and raccoon photos on top of playscapes. Nobody, nobody's going to dismiss that. Have yourself a great weekend. Thank you for making time for our audience. It meant a lot to me. Thank you. you Stefan Burrell, uh, epidemiologist, infectious disease specialist. Let me play you this clip. Dr. Isaac Bogus. We asked him about wastewater earlier. You heard what Stefan said right there. Um, but here's what he said. Uh, Dr. Bogus did an hour ago. When I look at wastewater, I look for two things. Number one, the trajectory of the pandemic. And number two, the geographic spread of the issue. Those are the two things. I, I don't know how to quantify wastewater signal into estimated case numbers. Maybe other people do and can do that with more confidence. But the wastewater tells me, are we headed upwards or downwards? That's right. And then in which parts of the province are we headed upward or downwards? Those are the only two takeaways I get from that. And that's what the majority of people say. This is ne- I'm telling you again, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to feel good about saying it going into the weekend. infectious disease specialist dr isaac bogosh a simpler times right in a simpler era we're just looking forward to the ball game tonight beer popcorn and the like but uh but we're still we're still working our way out of things aren't we we sure are but we can still look forward to beer and popcorn and baseball i, I figured that i figured that would uh th- that's uh that's the case here what are you spotting with um with the wave itself you described it as a a, a wavelet a wave here we are right now um and I, I wonder if you start to see uh a crest we had dr suman chakrabarty on this week he sees it maybe in about a week and a half to two weeks hospitalizations are really low in a lot of comparable cities in the united states and across the united states they kind of if they hit ba2 uh, dr bogus they hit it earlier than we did do you see a peak and and is it coming soon yeah, I mean, uh, I really look at, at, at a lot of the modeling here. We'll very likely see the peak of this wave in the next week and a half to two weeks. I mean, the term wavelet obviously got a lot of negative attention here and there. I think what I was trying to at least express a few weeks ago was that there was uncertainty. You might have a wave, you might have a smaller wave, which is a wave, that's all a wavelet is. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, and, you know, obviously there's no value judgment attached to that. That just means that the wave is a bit smaller. Still, some people are going to get sick. Some people are going to sadly die. It doesn't make those people who get sick and die any less important, regardless of the size of the wave. You still have to care for the population. But, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, all the modeling seems to suggest that this is going to peak sometime in late April and, and uh, we'll move on. I, I don't think the hospitalizations will be as high uh, versus our last wave. Some of the modeling I've seen suggested it might be a half to two thirds in that range, which again, that's still people in hospital. We still got to care for them. There's still a lot of people in the community who are getting sick. And uh, if we can take steps to prevent that, we absolutely should. Dr. Isaac Bogush, our guest. All right. We talked about wastewater on the show and I know, I know it's gone up, um, but this is, this is what I found yesterday. I found the CDC saying it's not possible uh, and it's not, a, it's not a credible primary source. We can tell trends. We can obviously tell trends from it. And I, I remember talking about it in the fall saying this is how a lot of U.S. colleges are staying open. They're being proactive. They're testing the wastewater. They want to keep kids in dormitories, keep kids in schools. And they were really, really innovative. They've got all the facilities right there at a lot of their labs. So they were utilizing it to keep schools open. But it's very difficult. I haven't seen any other jurisdiction. So I I'm, I'm promise you, I'm not asking you to dump 
dunk on Dr. Uni here, but it's yeah. really, really difficult to put a number on wastewater was was what I found yesterday. It is really, really difficult to uh, to address that. When I look at wastewater, I look for two things. Number one, the trajectory of the pandemic. And number two, the geographic spread of the issue. Those are the two things. I I don't know how to quantify wastewater signal into estimated case numbers. Maybe other people do and can do that with more confidence. But the wastewater tells me, are we headed upwards or downwards? That's right. And then in which parts of the province are we headed upward or downwards? Those are the only two takeaways I get from that. Yeah, listen, <laughs> we're headed upwards mm-hmm. and we're headed upwards in all jurisdictions. That's a problem. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think it's I think there's. Whenever you give a number, you have to have error bars around that number. And I think when you're making estimates of the number of new cases per day around with wastewater surveillance, those error bars, meaning you could be a little off, uh, might be might be rather sizable. So, again, uh, but the take home point is the same. There's a lot of COVID out there. We should be careful. A ton of COVID. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I struggled with the idea that the science table was reporting that. I'm like, hey, listen, we've all been right. We've all been wrong. If Dr. Uni's putting that number out there, it's something we got to be alert to and, and pay attention to. And I, I, I really believe that we actually are. I think we're well aware we've got a lot more Omicron spread um, than we had in January even, or a lot of BA2 spread, I should say. But what what we see also is ICUs holding steady, and they weren't in January. And we see a lot of hospitalization, a lot of in-out, doctors are telling me, a lot quicker. They're, they're, it's not quite a turnstile, but it's more of a turnstile. Than it. it was really concerning in December and January, especially among the unvaccinated in those months. Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm working on the COVID ward uh, now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I'm in the hospital right now. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're seeing, I, I think, across the province, you know, either people who are unvaccinated, people who are certainly on the older end of the spectrum, people who ha- are have uh, who are frail because of either age or underlying medical conditions, like people who are going to be disproportionately impacted by uh, by this infection. And again. There's a lot of people like that in Ontario. And, uh, you know, when you have such a transmissible virus, it, it can really work its way into just any nook and cranny in, in the province. And and um, and that's why we have to be careful. And that's why I think mm. we should be taking steps to at least help curb community transmission. I think if people are in indoor settings, uh, you should really be wearing a mask, especially now. There's just a lot of COVID out there. And uh, and that, that might help protect you and protect people around you. Uh, it, 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 you know, it's obviously not going to stop a wave, but it certainly can help create safer indoor spaces and protect people. And, and we should be mindful of that, especially when we have a, a pretty significant degree of COVID uh, out there. Yeah, it's true. The vast majority of people aren't going to land themselves in hospital, but there's still a lot of vulnerable people and, and under vaccinated communities. And, and those people, mm. uh, unfortunately, are, are more likely to end up in hospital. Dr. Isaac Bogus, our guest on Toronto today. I know we only got a couple minutes. So the, the mandate, um, the, the liberals want a modified mandate regarding masks. The NDP seems to want to be back where we were um, six weeks ago. They, they see that with the numbers and the trajectory. It's tricky, right? Because I think you and I have talked about the theatrics of the restaurant mask, uh, the going into the gym mask, the going into the movie theater mask. 
But I hear people saying, I don't have a choice but to go to the, those are choices. And they're great choices because you should be physically fit and you should go enjoy yourself. And mental yeah. health is important. But gro- but they do- the liberals kind of have that middle ground, don't they, with grocery stores and pharmacies. And, and I took my kid to a walk-in clinic Monday. I wore a mask for three straight hours. Yeah, like like I, I, I wonder if there's a middle ground. But I also know I, I can't I can't watch it in schools again. I, I, I don't I don't know about the hard evidence there. I don't see it after 26 months. And I don't see mandates working in a lot of Western democracies. I just I hope everybody can just look out for each other. Be smart. Yeah, this is really interesting, because like when we look at a global level, I think there's just going to be some communities and some societies where when you have senior public health or senior political leaders say, hey, everyone put a mask on, 99% of people are going to put a mask on Mm -hmm. without a mandate. And then I think there's going to be other societies where when you have senior political leaders or public health leaders say, hey, you know what, you should wear a mask, you know, a small, much smaller percentage of people are going to wear a mask. The mask debate, quite frankly, has been my least favorite. Yes. (laughs) What, like February or March of 2020? I, I, I literally have a folder with every single study on masking at the community level, at the individual mm-hmm. level, at the county level, at the school level. Like, I think we can debate whether or not the politics of mandating is reasonable, uh, but I don't think it's uh, debatable to say, you know, people say, well, masks don't work. Well, they actually do. You can debate to what extent That's they right. work. Yeah. They do. But we can talk about to what extent and the value judgment of, based on the extent that they work, is it worthwhile to to mandate it? I think that's the real debate. But yeah, we, masks reduce the risk of transmission. Masks protect the individual. Masks certainly take the edge off a wave, but it's, uh, it's obviously not going to stop a wave, and they're obviously not perfect. Now, I know we might disagree on this, and that's okay. We're yeah. two adults having an adult yeah. conversation. But uh, I, I personally thought that the mandate was lifted too soon. Mm-hmm. I would have kept that throughout uh, throughout this wave. It, without it, you know, that, that middle ground that the Liberals proposed, I don't think that's unreasonable at all. You know, in, in indoor public places that people have to go to, grocery stores, et cetera, I think that's, that's, that's a reasonable approach. Maybe they'll have buy-in. But, of course, at the end of the day, you have to do – this is a democracy. And, uh, and you know, I'd li- I certainly have an opinion on this, but, you know, the will of the people is the right answer. And uh, I think – that obviously has to be taken into account. I, c- I couldn't have crystallized it better, so I, I won't follow up on that. I loved having you on. Thanks for the time. Thanks for bringing it to us, and, and our listeners always appreciate it. I'm great to Dr. Isaac Bogush. Uh, budget recap. I watched uh, our next guest last night with uh, Donna Friesen, and there was a lot to get to, a lot to get to, especially with this new uh, alliance, if you will, with the Liberals and NDP. It probably altered how things ended up going um, over the last six, seven weeks. David Aiken, Global News uh, Chief Political Correspondent, joins us now. Do you, do you think that's fair? Did we get a different budget um, than we would have gotten had this uh, had the conversations with Jugmeet Singh and and, uh, and Justin Trudeau? Clearly, the dental factor probably isn't in the budget without that that, that alliance. Yeah, that's that's probably the biggest thing, to be honest. Going into it, if you listen to, say, the Conservative members of Parliament, they were saying, oh, this is an NDP budget, it's going to be mm-hmm. spenderama, uh, billions in, in deficits. And to be honest, I was struck by how modest it is. In, in a given year, the government spends a lot of money. The government is going to spend $450 billion next year. That's the cost of government. But you know what? Only $7 billion of that 
is new spending. So $450 billion budget and just really a drop in the bucket in new red ink, if you will, new spending. Um, our deficit is not really going to increase that much. And in fact, it's on a track to be pretty close to balance within five years. You know, there may be more spending to come. Who knows? But a pretty modest budget. Yes, it does include that dental care program. That's new. It's only going to cost that that portion. Phase one will only cost us about three hundred million dollars in the first year. But what it's going to do is make sure that every kid in the country under the age of 12 who isn't covered by a private dental care plan is going to get dental care. And that's that's important to many Canadians. Certainly was the NDP. That's what they wanted in the budget. Um, so that's going to go into effect. Again, all kids under 12 from sort of low and middle income households. So it's, it's for households with income under $90,000. That's about 90,000 kids who will yeah. get dental care that otherwise wasn't getting it. And, uh, you know, that's certainly going to be important to a lot of moms and dads. I laughed a little bit because I remember I got braces when I was 13 and we put braces on both our kids at 13 and 14. And I'm thinking <laughs> a lot of parents might be hustling uh, to get the braces on before 12, uh, given that that's the case. But we'll see if that's true or not. Yeah, if you put braces on two kids, you probably bought your orthodontist like a new pool in the backyard. I, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I know where it's at. I, uh, yeah, I cringe uh, thinking about it. You mentioned um, the impact of the tax-free first home savings account, and, and you tweeted about it. It's It's going to be really interesting. I, I agree. You, you mentioned that you think it'll be really, really popular. There's some fascinating things about it. I thought this was a hard one for the conservatives to criticize. They said, under this liberal government, housing's less affordable, housing's less affordable. This is a step. It's a, we don't know how big a step it's going to be. We don't know how many people will take advantage, but it, it, it got a lot of people talking yesterday afternoon. It did, and I, and I think it, my, my sense that it's going to be popular is I, I was around when Jim Flaherty introduced the tax-free savings account, the TIFSA, and uh, there was great take-up for that. And, and the TIFSA, you could put uh, – I, I, sorry, I should know what the maximum contribution is right now. I think it's four or 5000 bucks you can put in. But that's you, – you pay tax on that income when it goes into the TIFSA. Mm -hmm. It's tax-free while it grows in there, tax-free when it comes out. This new thing, this new uh, first home savings account, it's tax-free going in. So in that sense, it's like an RRSP. So it's a maximum $8,000 that you can contribute in any one year to a lifetime contribution of $40,000. So you put it in, it's tax-free. Then it grows tax-free inside the account. When you take it out, tax-free again. So tax-free in, tax-free out. Um, the one quibble, and this is where you may see some conservatives talk about this, is that there is a program where you can withdraw funds from your RSP and use those funds to pay for a down payment. Um, and that, that it comes out of your RSP tax-free. Um, and of course, you'd, you'd put it in tax-free. The, the difference there, if you use your RSP to help buy uh, the, first, the first down payment, um, at some point you have to pay back that RSP yeah. contribution or you get taxed on it. So uh, do these two programs mesh? Is it one or the other? Can we have both? I think that's something that uh, you will see conservatives that want to know the details, not just conservatives, Canadians want to know a little more of the details. And that home savings account, by the way, it is going to take time to get into place. It won't be available for a year. What you do have right now is a doubling of the first-time homebuyer's credit. So that's 5000 bucks again, for first-time homebuyers. It's doubling to 10000 and that is retroactive to any purchase made after January the 1st. The problem, though, Greg, Greg with mm -hmm. those two things is if you essentially subsidize homebuyers, you make it cheaper for a first-time homebuyer, that's only going to push up demand. And we have a we have a problem. We don't have enough supply. That's one of the reasons houses are costing so much. And so the government did take steps on that side of the equation, the supply side, 
It wants to double the number of new homes we build in Canada every year from 200,000 homes to 400,000 homes. It's put aside $2 billion this year to spend. Money may go to municipalities, other organizations, to really quicken the pace of new home construction. And every economist I've talked to says that's the, that's yeah. the most important thing is more homes, please. David Aiken, our guest on Toronto Today. You make such a great point. I, I'm in that RRSP program. We, we came and bought here in, uh, moving from Michigan, and we bought in the summer of 09. And every year we do our taxes, I'm like, oh, yeah. We, and we got, I think we got about two or three years left of those kind of payments. But you make a great great point because some of this is just about demand. We, we want the help, and we need the help when we're buying a home. I tell you what, when we do the right things and we've got these 25-, 30-year mortgages, we want to be capitalists at the end of that. <laughs> like we, we don't want, you know, extra taxes. We don't want to get like we, everybody wants to keep their homes value. I'm sure that they do. But at the same time, we look at our kids and we're like, we need we need a pathway here to entry that um, that that just doesn't seem available right now. It's hard. Eight thousand dollars, David. I don't think I could save eight thousand dollars until a year until I was in my early 30s. It's hard to do in your 20s. Right. And, and that's the other thing that people pointed out. And you will see certainly new Democrats point this out. You know, they're often thinking of lower middle income Canadians saying, who the heck has got an extra $8,000 at the end of the year? Um, it's particularly in, when you're young and you're saving for your first home. Um, that, that RRSP plan, uh, the, 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 the route you took drawing out from the RRSP, that's been very popular ever since mm -hmm. it's been around. And, uh, of course, if it's in the RRSP, you could be saving either for a home or your RSP. So, you know, th there's all these tweaks, but again, we just need some new homes. And, uh, you know, I'm sure during the Ontario provincial election, which, you know, that's ramping up, obviously, we'll be keeping an eye on that. I, I can't imagine that the price of a home is not going to be a dominant issue in that election. And again, the federal government yesterday saying this housing affordability question, it is not something that the federal government can solve on its own. And in fact, Christopher Freeland said exactly that. It's going to take provinces. It's going to take municipalities, the feds, um, and, uh, you know, ways we design cities, planners, you, you, you got it. It's, uh, it's a big challenge and it's a multi-year challenge that uh, all governments, I think, are, are really focused on. I only got about 90 seconds, and, and I know you're tied for time, too, but I want to pick your brain on uh, on um, your mention of, of Pierre Polyev. I thought it was really fascinating. You say that you've not seen rallies with this kind of energy and this kind of pulse, and he's consistent. And I'm a little surprised, David. You, I know you're going to be all over this race all summer for us, but my gosh, I, we haven't really seen much of Patrick Brown. I know he flew out to Vancouver and met with some folks there. Jean Charest recovered from COVID. He's starting to make the rounds again. Pierre is like his foot has been on the gas pedal. It feels like since since he announced in early February. Yeah, and, and uh, you're right. I, we haven't. I mean, I think Patrick Brown's media team is just ignoring the quote mainstream media. Maybe they don't need us. And uh, you know, he's got to sign up members. Okay, fine. But I haven't seen a really a picture of him. I've seen some pictures on his social feeds. He's he's met with some church groups, faith groups mm -hmm. in in and around Brampton. But uh, listen, just to compare, I mean, the crowd size is a proxy. I think for enthusiasm, are you going to get people out? And on, probably I was in Ontario last week, Windsor. Uh, he was up near Newmarket, uh, here in Ottawa. And yeah, he was drawing a thousand people uh, at lunchtime, uh, you know, to, yeah. to come out for rallies. He was in Vancouver last night, Polyev. I'm looking at the pictures in front of me. Just got in from our cruise in Vancouver. They were there. Yeah, he draws another thousand in Vancouver. Meanwhile, Jean Charest, the former Quebec premier, you know, his, uh, we were sending cameras to his events. He was in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia yesterday or a couple of days ago. And he had 40, 40, 40 people. And he looked like he was the youngest one in the room. And that's not good. The other point is Pauliev's crowd 
the demographic is skewing younger. And that is important. If he can translate younger people, first-time voters, uh, whatever, to uh, get things out. But right now, it's it's hard when you're looking at the campaign to say, who's got the momentum? Yeah, it's uh, it's Pauly Ev at this point. Yeah, uh, he, I don't, no sign of burnout. Um, it's it's uh, it, it's definitely grassroots. It's definitely skews younger demographic-wise. David, loved having you on today. Thanks for your insight, and have a great weekend. Sure, thanks. Cheers. Awesome. David Aiken, uh, Global's chief political correspondent. Uh, Mike Stubbs joins us from uh, London Live. Uh, he hosts that show on uh, tape every, no, sorry, live between 3 and 6 on our sister station, 980 uh, CFPL. And Jason Chapman is 640 Toronto's executive producer. Mike, you were, that's August 4th, 1983. We, we're all about the same age, the three of us, big baseball fans. And we probably, like, we, it's, that's, I wish that had happened during the school year because we all would have just talked about that at recess the next day. We probably had to phone friends on a landline and talk about Dave Winfield killing the seagull the night before. And as a child, was that not a little disturbing? Like we weren't well, even in our teen years at that point. <laughs> I found that this he he killed a seagull. That was my first reaction. But you like we needed a criminal. We needed an intent. We needed a, a Jackie Jason, the that Seinfeld attorney uh, to the the Johnny Cochran knockoff to determine whether he intentionally or accidentally. It's like the spit, right? The 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 Kramer spit. We would know then for sure if he did it on purpose or not. Episode. Listen, guys, I got to I got to call you out. I'm sorry, I was only uh, four years old at the time, born in '79, so I wasn't traumatized at all. I uh, just started to get my love of the baseball at this time. So I, I, I I'm more of a Randy Johnson guy. If you want to get into death it, on the baseball field, it's so. amazing it didn't happen a second time. I know I've been at Exhibition Stadium when there's like 58 seagulls on the field in between innings, and it's amazing it hasn't happened more often. To be honest. Isn't it great it's opening day? Honestly, I see those old pictures back from when the Jays started and that awful exhibition stadium where it looks like the entire city of Toronto was an opening day because you could fit them around, right? This massive, ugly football stadium. But it's the sun is shining. It's opening day. Life is good, friends. It's good. It's good. Um, all right, so buying a first home, we've all done it. Um, you know, and as I documented with Gord earlier, I told uh, Gord Rennie, Mike, that you and I lived together briefly. You met your, your lovely uh, future wife. Uh, ditched me but that was never in the cards for you and I to be homeowners together you know uh, could have considered it but we've all done it does yesterday hope belief uh, more expectation that it's easier a year from now than it was yesterday because I know I know you live in London um, outside of London and St. Thomas I real estate prices in London have been exponentially growing so this isn't just a Toronto Vancouver thing is it where you are it is absolutely wild. And we look at people who have perhaps sold their properties in Toronto, in Oakville, and they've now come this way because they can get exactly the same house they had, bigger, smaller, whatever they want, and then pocket a whole bunch more money. Mm -hmm. So we've seen this really change the landscape. Do I think it's going to be easier in some ways, maybe because there will be some measures in place to try and help out those first time home buyers. But I don't think we're changing the price all that much. I don't think we're seeing the average price of a home all of a sudden drop 200,000 in Toronto or drop 200,000 no. somewhere else in Ontario. That ship has sailed. There, there is no way to bring it down that much. Jason, Sabrina Matto makes a good point in the National Post because she documents you sort of top out with this new uh, FHSA scenario, sort of a TFSA for real estate for first time home buyers. And, and you can get, you know, you're getting some kickback from the government, but you, it gets you up to 90 grand and 90 grand is nothing to sneeze at. 
But it ain't much of a down payment in, in the GTA or Vancouver or many, uh, you know, and, and as Mike documents, Kitchener and Guelph now are, are selling million dollar homes that were 550, 600 grand a decade ago. Uh, guys, this is pointless. I'm, I'm going to tell you this is utterly pointless. So you can put up to $8,000 into the special account that you can then use to buy a house. Can I tell you why I own a house in Toronto? It's my wife. My wife made. Well, we can change that. Smart financial decisions, I know, trust me. But she made smart financial decisions thanks to advice from her parents when she was in her 20s. She bought into a very small condo early on. Again, though, uh, I love my wife dearly with help with her parents as well financially. And then that's growing over the years, over the last 25 years or so, for us to be able to own a house, $90,000. And you have to find 8000 of your own dollars to put aside right now still. And you're paying... $2,000 $2,000 in rent. And, and guys, honestly, this is a lovely idea, but the only the rich, and I'm part of that group, will be able to buy a house moving forward. I, it, it's, this isn't the solution. Mike, I'm, I'm thinking for me, um, and I, I'll just throw my own hat in the ring. I probably couldn't have saved $8,000 until, un, unless a lot of sports uh, bets came through. I couldn't have saved $8,000 until probably I was 35. I, so so we're talking, if you get out of university with an undergrad degree, your kids are getting to that age now. That's a dozen years of renting. And, and that feels like, yeah, it's great. You're living your life, but it's, it, you're not getting any equity and, and you're not getting any younger when you get to 35. Then you're looking at 25, 30-year mortgages. Kids in their early 20s right now are saying, I will never own a home. Terrible. And these are kids right. that will have good jobs that will come out of school, will have good jobs. They're saying, I will never own a home. They have no optimism whatsoever. And if you go back, there's a great documentary. It's called Push. And it was created by Leilani Farah. And she kind of started the warning bells years ago. So this is going back three, four years. And she said, foreign investment is jacking up the prices around the world. And this is going to come to your neighborhood too. And you are going to see companies that buy apartment buildings turn them into luxury condos. And that's going to happen again and again and again. And that kind of housing is going to disappear, the apartment housing, and it's going to be out of reach for a lot of people. It Mm -hmm. has put people on the street. And she said, you have to take measures to get foreign investment out because we can't have shareholders buying into companies that are directing real estate. It just makes the prices soar. She saw this coming. She told the world, but unfortunately, it was already happening. Yeah, and and Jason, it, 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 I love staying with this because I think it digs deep into a, a critical issue. I think it's the biggest issue from yesterday's budget. I know everybody, everybody's got their hand in the air saying, "No, I, I care." But there's a ton of things to care about. Of course, there are. But but at the same time, homeowners like you, like Mike, like me, like a ton of our listeners say, "I'm putting the time in. I've put the improvements in. Don't like, don't you heavily tax me? Don't ruin my equity because it is all we. Ha- and it may be our only gateway." To getting our kids their own homes is someday selling or ours. These are hard decisions we'll all have to make. Yeah, let me take this a couple different directions. I know I don't want my asset to go down, but I mean, I how if not for me, then how's my kid going to afford a home later on in life? That's no way to live. Um, I, I got to say this, dude. Let me throw mm-hmm. this out. Uh, we chose, I guess, military spending over hospitals and people again yesterday. That That's my takeaway. <clears throat> I'm not convinced that we need to spend as much money as we're spending on military. Come at me. Come at me. I, I understand we're in an incredibly difficult time right now watching what's happening over and over and over again 
overseas. I don't think anybody's invading Canada. I don't want to underfund our military, but we've chosen military over health care. Hello. Uh, and and people. Um, that's where I'm at. Yeah. Well, look, we got a couple minutes left. Let's end. Let's end. Let's not talk about masks. Let's not talk about no. them. Let's because we're all wearing one what? right now. I have three N95s <laughs> on my face, and I, it's amazing you can hear me as well as you can hear me. Um, the Blue Jays. Uh, let, let, what do you think attendance is going to be like? We were talking about this earlier. 2016, Mike. They averaged 41, 42,000. Now, the only way they do that is getting people like you to come for a two-hour drive, or come from Kitchener, or come from Guelph, or come from Niagara Falls. In 2019, this is my recollection, it was all about could the Leafs beat Boston in that first round and Kawhi Leonard. This might be Kawhi Leonard's only year here. Spoiler, it was. How are they? We didn't care about the Blue Jays, it felt like, until July, maybe late July of 2019. I think we're all in on them right now. Oh, I think everybody is in on them. I think the attendance will be good. I really mm-hmm. do. I think you'll still see a lot of people wanting to get out, wanting to go and do things. We still have just kind of tip of the iceberg for that and it's kind of a a how can I miss you if you won't go away scenario you know that if a sports team does really 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 well but doesn't win eventually some apathy kind of creeps in however if they go away for a little bit and then start to rise as the Blue Jays did last year you're going to have a lot of people who have a lot of interest in this so this Mm. is going to be jump on the bandwagon jump on the rise (laughs) because the rise is still happening this is going to be fun Jason I all you you know the city well and I always see you know the other teams say oh we're really happy the other teams are doing well well I don't buy that a lot of the time the Blue Jays to be honest to be honest would love a Leafs first round exit. They love a Raptors first round exit. They want the town to themselves because, as I document, they didn't get the. They, they called Vladdy up on a Friday night, and it's like nobody noticed he was even Bo Bichette, Vladdy. They, nobody noticed they were even playing here for four months because the Raptors did what they did. Yeah, listen, I love baseball. It's my first love still, but I've got a five year old and a one year old. So let's get into it. Would I take <laughs> like my family to the games? Um, they're going to have to be super entertained. The, the, the Rogers Center needs to become more of a destination for families still. I know they're working on it. However, they got to do more. I think Mike's right. I think the Jays will see a, a good amount of people there. People are itching to do things. But the Raptors, I think more than the Leafs, are the wild card this year. I think that people will pile on the Raptors bandwagon, and they are good. They are good. Mm. And if they go deep, Kawhi is in our ether. Joe Carter isn't right now. Uh, so, I mean, I think that's the, the Jays might have an attendance pull away if the Raps go Mike, deep. Mike, tell him he's Rick- wrong. The Leafs are like a drug. <laughs> They're a drug that people can't yeah, like. There's no are. therapy. There's no rehab session. Ugh. Austin Matthews breaks Rick's five, Rick Five's record. You're going to have a Jack Campbell, Bobrovsky, first round goalie. Ba- oh, my Bobrovsky. God. Or, or uh, Vavzalevsky. It feels like we're on the short end of the stick with goaltending all the time. Tell him the Leafs are a drug that people can't give up. Up, Mike, if those Leafs get into the second round, I can't even picture what downtown <laughs> Toronto is going to be like. And that would just be the second round and it would just get bigger from there. So, yeah, yeah. the Jays might have to wait until July in order to really reap the benefits. But I think it'll be there. Mike Stubbs, uh, London Live. Have a, have a whoa, uh, shots fired. Sorry. I, oh, sorry, I gotta go. I gotta go. <laughs> yeah, uh, J- Jason's now taking the Kitchener Rangers in his OHL Western Conference bracket. Come on, give give the Knights some love here. Come on. Sorry. Uh, have a great show today, Mike. Thank you. Appreciate you listening to Toronto today. Uh, have a great weekend. Of course, we'll be back with a live show on Monday morning. Blue Jays, a lot of sports, too. Blue Jays with their uh, first three games. The Masters, did Tiger Woods make the cut? How did he do? 
Uh, and we'll, of course, uh, talk about the issues of the day, all the big stuff with you on Toronto Today. Monday morning, you can hear us on the Radio Player Canada app or you can hear us on 640toronto.com. Take care of yourselves. Thank you very much for listening.